0: I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So, good morning. It's Sunday, and tomorrow is Election Day. Election Monday. So we're going to dance with the political this morning, carefully. After all, I'm assuming that for many of us, Right now, it's the elephant in the room. However, the message that I hope will emerge is something that transcends it, that transcends the political without avoiding it and without denying it or discarding it. And I suspect overtly or behind the scenes, we have representatives or supporters of every political party in this congregation. I actually hope so, for I believe that there should be more diversity within the church than there is in any other organization, not always the reality. So today is an invitation to look at those ideas where you might be uncomfortable or closed, not to change your values or ideas, but to find a way to transcend them as a community of faith. And this is what I see in our texts. Jeremiah lived in absolute chaotic times, born as a PK, a prophet's kid, Between 600 and 500 BCE, near the end of the Iron Age, in the ancient Near East, he is cast into the religious and political turmoil of intertwined faith and political power. And unlike us, he certainly doesn't have a vote. And he lived in this dangerously unpredictable outer world, yet he was called as a prophet to reflect on the inner world or the kingdom world, as he saw it, to speak truth that could make you a hero one day and a corpse the next. And true to his inner convictions, he spoke against power as well as against some of his fellow prophets who just gave the political and religious leaders what they wanted to hear. It was a harsh and a primitive time. And some of the competing powers around him were still practicing things like child sacrifice, an extension, an extreme extension of the idea that the more important the object of sacrifice, the more devout the person giving it up was. Amazing how common moral discernment is lost when good people think some god or power-hungry leader has to be obeyed or appeased. And amazing how common moral discernment is lost when good people become so preoccupied with an idea that anyone with a different idea becomes an enemy. And political and religious power often perpetuates that reality and profits by getting us to define ourselves by what and who we're for and what and who we're against, by making us fearful or uncomfortable with the other. In Jeremiah's time, the common people didn't have that luxury. They were at the mercy of whoever was in power at the time, and they often adjusted their spoken beliefs to make life as manageable and easy as possible. And if the new gods or kings require child sacrifice, sacrifice, necessity almost forced them to accommodate. You obeyed to survive, and then you suffered and kept your actual beliefs hidden. So, Jeremiah, seemingly taking his task as a prophet seriously, sought to reflect what he thought was right, what was in his heart, speaking into a system that could change its belief on the dime of the next leader. And he's called the weeping prophet, because he is always crying about something. Goes with the territory, and like now, there was a lot to cry about. Simone Weil, the French philosopher and activist, never gentle with her words, said, ''Human beings are so made that the ones who do the crushing feel nothing. It is the person crushed who feels what is happening. Unless one has placed oneself on the side of the oppressor, on the side of the oppressed, to feel with them, one cannot understand.'' And Jeremiah met this challenge with resistance and tears. We see Jeremiah in our text grappling with his outer world, his political and religious structures in the early part of our text, verses 27 to 32. They reflect his grappling like we grapple with this outer world. But then verse 33 and 34 share what he longs for and what he seems to believe and suggests that the divine longs for. I will put my law within them and I will write it in their minds? No, in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. The divine becomes so significant and the kingdom of God becomes so significant that you don't need to talk about it anymore. It's a given, just live it. The presence of God will be so assumed that it hardly needs to be mentioned. This is Jeremiah's image of the kingdom of God. Loving God is assumed, and because it is assumed, loving our neighbor is also assumed, so much so that we are invited by Christ to even love our enemies. This is the divine longing. Our psalm puts this divine longing into beautiful poetic form. God within is our constant. It's a given. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. It's all I can think of. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. And as I've mentioned before, the world we live in is 99% focused on the things that we as humans have created. The prophet's task is to remind us Not only of what God created, the givens, but that everything we create is created out of the things God has created. Focus your faith on the givens. And in the New Testament we hear this spoken as, you are in the world but not of the world. Our epistle confirms this message and pushes it further, seeking to show us how this works in the real world or perhaps the unreal world. We're invited to serve different purposes than our culture. Everyone, it says, that belongs to God becomes proficient. That is, well-advanced. Not just in the idea of being a Jesus follower, but in the art of being a Jesus follower. And now we come to this parable in our Gospel reading. Like so many of the parables, it's ambiguous and very provocative. We see a judge whom we would normally identify with God, yet this judge seems so unlike the God we love and know in our hearts. And we see a widow who we automatically likely assume is poor and the victim, alone and totally preoccupied with surviving, endlessly pleading with this judge. And on one level the message seems to be that we persevere in prayer, and if we bother God enough. God will answer because God really does care. And we also stereotypically assume that the widow is a good person here. But let's look closer at the judge and the widow. It says that the judge neither feared God nor had respect for the people. Those were an expression of the two main laws of Judaism, love God, love neighbor. All it's saying is that he was an outsider. Fearing God and respecting others were the two great Jewish commandments doesn't necessarily make him a corrupt or evil person, perhaps a little self-centered, perhaps a little too politically astute. Likely appointed by the Romans to administer justice in this strange foreign Jewish culture. He's not one of them. He's an outsider. He's part of another political party that doesn't care about what this opposing party thinks or feels. No voting in this case. Might makes right. And then on first blush, the widow seems gutsy. We assume she's poor and alone and desperate and at her wit's end. But the language in the Greek suggests otherwise. The word translated bothering me is much more like badgering. In fact it's the word that's used when a rider is frustrated with his horse for not going fast enough and so he whips it using pain and fear to motivate it. It's the word used when you want to give someone a black eye. She is threatening him with violence. So what if this widow is rich and powerful within the Jewish culture? At the time of Jesus, one-third of all the property in Palestine was owned by women, often the wives of wealthy men who had passed away. Among the poor, yes, the widow suffered dramatically. But what if this widow was rich? What if she carried a lot of clout in the Jewish culture? If she was so poor, how come she had endless time to badger this indifferent judge? She seems totally OCD about this. The original language actually suggests that she's looking more for revenge than justice. She didn't like the way the court case ended because it didn't go her way. And she has this luxury to badger the judge. Stay with my imagination here. So if the widow's persistent isn't about how we should pray, then what is it about? Look closely at the first and last sentences of our text, as well as what happens in the preceding and in the next chapters. The first line is, Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart and then he tells the parable and then the parable ends and yet when the Son of Man comes will he find faith on earth? This persistent prayer I want to suggest is not about justice but about not losing heart and whether faith will survive on the earth. What started this whole section for Jesus was what happened in chapter 17. The Pharisees asked When is the kingdom coming? And Jesus said, well, it's already here. The kingdom is among you. Can't you see it? We are to pray and not lose heart. No matter what is happening in our world, we are called to notice the kingdom that is among us, right in the middle of the mess, often very hard to see in our outer worlds discouraging even so much so that we lose sight of it in our inner worlds and certainly then can't see it in the outer world. We are in the world but not of the world. We are called to not lose heart and notice those places where the kingdom is among us, even as we persistently keep bothering the system on behalf of those trapped in injustice. But we are not to use God's word, or to use God for what we want. All of this, I think, reminds us that the parables of Jesus are not these simple, one-dimensional, moral, and ethical tales. Parables are short stories that were intended by Jesus to cause his audience to take uh, notice, to stop and reflect and discern where and how Jesus was calling them and us to pay attention to our presuppositions, our prejudices, our assumptions, and our stereotypes. Words matter, and reflection and discernment around the words of Jesus especially matter as we learn and strive to live into the two great commandments, the principles that validate the kingdom of God as among us. Love God, love neighbor. To have faith and to not lose heart Is to cling to that reality. Noticing the kingdom among us. This is not about correcting or opposing or getting people to change their minds. It's looking beyond that to the kingdom operating under, around, above, and alongside of our little kingdoms. We pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not as a way to manipulate what is or isn't happening, rather to remind ourselves to look for those places where the kingdom of God, where the kingdom of love, is squeezing through the hard cracks in our world. Another quote from Simone Weil. All the natural movements of the soul are controlled by laws analogous to gravity. Grace is the only exception. Grace fills empty spaces. But it can only enter where there is a void, an openness, to receive it, and it is grace itself which creates this void. The imagination is continually at work, filling up all the fissures through which grace might pass." Henri Nouwen has a lovely metaphor I've mentioned before. He suggests that we notice the flowers that come up out of the cracks of the sidewalk, and he says they will not make the sidewalk softer. But if you begin to notice them and see them as that aspect of the Kingdom of God emerging out of the cracks of the hardness in our lives, you're going to see more of them, and more of them, and more of them. And that's why solitude, silence, worship, and the Eucharist are so important. They confront us with our addiction to noise. The noise that carries on the argument and addiction to ideas. Solitude invites us into those glimpses of the Kingdom, not as an escape, but more like a cleansing of the lens, allowing us to see the Kingdom among us, right in the midst of our preoccupation of right and wrong in our outer lives. Another word from Simone Weil. She hit me hard this week. It is only from the light which streams constantly from heaven that a tree can derive the energy to strike its roots deep into the soil. The tree is in fact rooted in the sky and that is an image of the kingdom. We are in fact rooted in the sky as we sink our roots deep into the soil of this life that God has called us to. So go forth and vote. Make the best decision you can discern. And leaving the booth Leave it with an awareness that there is a transcendence operating, there's a transcendent operating system called the kingdom of God that operates among us even when we can't uh, see it. Persistently pray and don't lose heart, for it is there. Amen.